Support for WSKG Studios is provided by Downtown Ithaca Alliance, working for the community to make Downtown Ithaca a vibrant place for all. Information about events, local businesses, and more at downtownithaca.com. And by the Finger Lakes Grassroots Festival of Music and Dance, a family-friendly summer event for all ages featuring 80 bands on four stages. Tickets and more information about grassroots in the community throughout the year at grassrootsfest.org. I'm Crystal Siracus. Welcome to Off the Page, the show featuring good books and good conversations with others from our own region and from around the world. My guest today is Connie Willis, one of the grand masters of science fiction. She's won 11 Hugo Awards and seven Nebula Awards, more than any other science fiction author. Her latest book is The Road to Roswell. It's part alien abduction, part road trip adventure, and part romantic comedy. And it's packed full of men in black, Elvis impersonators, tourist traps, conspiracy theories, and aliens. Connie, thanks so much for talking with me. Well, thank you. I'm really excited to be here. So in preparing for this interview, I read many of your other interviews. And one thing I noticed going back, I want to say to maybe around 1999 or 2000 is you've mentioned you're writing a UFO book for a very oh long God, yes. time. <laughs> yes, for so, a very long time. So why is this finally the right time for the road to Roswell? Well, it kept getting delayed. It wasn't it wasn't um it wasn't that I was stuck on the book or anything. It was just circumstances kept getting in the way. Uh I was I was working on it and then oh gosh I'm trying to remember all the things that happened um but it seemed like every time I tried to to think about seriously writing it uh I'd either have another project or the timing just wouldn't be right comedy is really interesting and you know it we we've all heard about the too soon situation where things are funny until they're not <laughs> And for instance, I'm doing a speech this weekend for the Locust Awards, and I had it all written, and it had a couple of jokes about a cruise that is um, heading out from China in 2024, taking the route of the Titanic, and that was that was a funny joke until this week when it wasn't. So, um, right, a really not funny joke. So, um, so you know that the that's one of the problems with comedy, and I. And, you know, the pandemic got in the way. All lots of things got in the way and other books took precedence. And so anyway, uh, I had always wanted to write this and I finally got around to it. <laughs> so <laughs> sorry, it's so late. It was worth the wait, I promise. Um, you have written books that are very serious. And then this one is is a comedy. It's a it's a great romp of a story. What is so difficult about writing comedy? Because I, I think I've heard from a lot of writers that it's it's a little bit harder than your serious drama-focused kind of stories. Well, I think there are a lot of reasons. In a drama, you can have a scene that, hmm, you can have a number of lines, I should say. You can you can have scenes in which a number of the lines aren't aren't that great, uh, but but the overall emotion of the drama will carry you through. With comedy basically every single step has to be right. It's kind of like doing a Fred Astaire number. It all has to work and it all has to connect to everything else. And and I think that that's one reason that it's that it can be difficult. I I find comedy to be a very natural mode for me. I'm a really 
cheerful person, which is not is not the same thing as having a comic disposition, but it's close. And I tend to see the humorous side of things, uh, even really dark things sometimes. And so um, that to me is a very natural, natural mode to write in. But it, it is technically a lot more complicated. And, you know, and then you have the problem with people don't take it seriously. I think it was Woody Allen, who I hate to quote, but said that 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 comic writers always sit at the children's table. And I think I think that's true. I don't think people take it very seriously. My attitude is Shakespeare started out writing dramas, then he moved to comedies. And and that tells you everything you need to know. He, he thought that they were worth writing. And uh, I definitely think they're worth writing, especially in really difficult times. And one of the reasons I wanted to write uh, the UFO book was because I think that, um, oh my gosh, things are not just grim, but crabby. Everyone's very crabby, right? And everyone's looking at the the bad side. And if you say, what a beautiful day, they say, right, but you know, climate change. <laughs> You're like, wait, I know, but you guys, we got to we got to occasionally look at the bright side. So anyway, I I think that comedy really can can be important when things are not going well. Let's talk about conspiracy theories. There's so many of them out there and oh my gosh. Even in this age where we have so much access to real information, it just feels like people are are more gullible. I I don't know what it is. Well, they've always fallen for stuff. I mean, Look at the tulip, great tulip thing. And back in the, I think it was the 1600s, uh, you know, it isn't, I don't think we've gotten stupider. I think social media has made maybe these, allowed these conspiracy theories to spread faster. But people have always, you know, I, I think one of the reasons they like conspiracy theories, and I think especially why they like the UFO aliens are here among us conspiracy is because it, it makes the world make sense. The world isn't so random. Uh, actually, all of these things are happening because the aliens are doing it to us, or, or there's a secret plot, or there's a secret group. All these, you know, the Illuminati and all these groups that are supposed to be running the world, they are, they're at least the feeling that someone, even if really bad people, are running the world, as opposed to the truth, which is nobody's running anything. And that's a really terrifying thought. Um, and I think people will do anything to avoid the idea that no one's in charge that things are happening randomly and because if they can then something really bad can happen randomly to me and so i think it's even though it should be terrifying that aliens you know should be landing um it's not as terrifying as the feeling that there's there's no point to anything so i think that's that's one thing but i i can't explain it i i rail constantly uh, about against conspiracy theories and and I keep saying, I a week ago, I was talking to someone and they said, well, you know, but Roswell, you know, and I'm like, okay, here's what Roswell was. And I explained that they have known since 1948 exactly what it was, exactly what that wreckage was. And they were like, they listened and then they were like, yeah, but how do you know that's not just a cover up? <laughs> it was a cover up. It was a cover up by the government of a secret Cold War project. No, no. I mean, how do you know it isn't a cover up or something more dire? So, it, you know, they want to believe it and it's it's hard. So, Well, it's interesting, you know, reading back through some of your different books and, and your interviews about those. You wrote a book about telepathy and what a terrible idea it is. That's crosstalk. You wrote Passage, which right. is a book 
about near-death experiences and the charlatans that take advantage of those people. And now the road to Roswell, which you've mentioned kind of was inspired because of this whole silly idea of alien abduction. And I love that you write these amazing books out of things that just annoy you. Right. Yes. <laughs> My husband thinks that if I were a writer, I would be a serial killer. Uh, it keeps me from from just ranting and raving all the time about the things that annoy me. And when I when I used to be in a writer's workshop, as I was for many years, I would start off ranting on something. Somebody would say, oh, I sense that Connie has a story idea. <laughs> and that was usually true because that I... I got far more of my ideas from the things that infuriated me than I did. Well, I don't know how other people get their ideas, but that's usually where I get my ideas. <laughs> so any approach that works, right? Yeah, exactly. So the road to Roswell starts with Francie, who is in Roswell because her friend is getting married to a true believer. And what's fun about the setting is it's at this museum. There's a convention taking place. There are people dressed as aliens everywhere. Is that something that you've ever seen in person? Um, I have been to Roswell a number of times. I have never actually been to the Roswell uh, Festival, which takes place every year on the anniversary of the Roswell crash. But I did tons of research on that. And I did. I have also been to any number of science fiction conventions. And the two bear a lot in common, although science fiction conventions are full of skeptics rather than, I mean, there are some true believers in various conspiracy theories at those two, but mostly science fiction conventions are are doing, if they're dressed up for it as aliens, they're dressed up for fun. Um, and that's true of some of the people at the Roswell Festival too, but there are a lot of true believers down there. And I have spoken to some of the true believers who have been at the festival and who who uh, do lectures and things down there and terrified. <laughs> it's terrifying. So, and yes, but it's great that the, the museum is is amazing that the ufo museum that i set the first part of the story in is real it's right in the middle of roswell it's the cheesiest place you could possibly imagine going to and and it's just it has a a crashed ufo and periodic with aliens standing around periodically steam comes out of it and the top opens up and everyone in the in the museum screams and oh my gosh it's it's great it's a great place i loved it and so anyway, I was like, I have to use this. And then I thought, well, I know I'll set a wedding here. And then I found out that, yes, they do weddings there all the time. So it, you can't you can't beat reality. It's, it's crazier than anything you could possibly think of. <laughs> well, Francie is there because of this wedding, and she is the one who gets abducted by an alien and kind of sets off this whole road trip adventure thing that happens. Right. And there are so many pop culture references in the book that it's not just like that they're mentioned, but they become part of the story. And in particular, Westerns end up playing a big role in this, especially right. Monument Valley. So what right. was it about that specific landmark that you really wanted to to build around? Well, I love. first of all, I love Westerns. I love them all. <laughs> and I grew up on Westerns and I, and I have always loved them. And um, especially John Ford Westerns. He made some of the most amazing, wonderful movies, starting with Stagecoach and moving on to The Searchers. And she wore a yellow ribbon and Fort Apache, many of which are set in Monument Valley. He loved Monument Valley. Um, he, he didn't have as good a grasp on geography as I would like him to have had. He didn't care, you know, basically. 
Um, and, and that attitude was picked up by pretty much every other Western writer with the result that Monument Valley just moves all over the place in Western. <laughs> it's just it astonishing. It's in Stagecoach, Monument Valley appears to be somewhere between Tombstone and Lordsburg at the very bottom of Arizona. And then in in uh, the searchers, it's in West Texas somewhere. Uh-huh. And then in other movies, it's, you know, it's in northern it, It's never in northern Arizona, I would just like to point out, which is where it actually is. And I thought this was really funny and uh, decided to make that a part of the plot because I'm like, stop moving Monument Valley around here. So and then it occurred to me that maybe there's a reason that Monument Valley is moving around in these westerns mm-hmm. other than just, well, John, like John Ford said, he said it was the quintessential Western landscape. And it is. It doesn't look anything like anything else. And when you see it, you instantly think the West, you know, yes. so he's right. But it just it drives me crazy. And I'm one of those people. I I'm still unable to watch Phil and Louise again, because I spent the entire first time through the movie, instead of sympathizing with their plight, um, going, how can you start out from Missouri, headed toward Mexico, and end up at the Grand Canyon? It's not geographically possible. And so I don't know what flaws my book may have, but by God, all of the geography is right. (laughs) I spent (laughs) hours with maps, making sure that you could get here from here and making sure that it took this long to get from one place to another, because that just drives me absolutely bonkers in the West. I'm I'm from West Texas, and the amount of shows will, will show beautiful mountains and forests and set, you know, near Odessa. I'm like, no, you know this. I and I can't so watch wrong. it. I get it. I get it. I know. Well, you know, I loved the the series Roswell. I haven't seen the reboot, but the original series TV series Roswell, I thought was really really good. If you wanted to take Take the whole UFO abduction thing seriously. I thought it was a great, great series, um, except that clearly no one had ever been to Roswell. And and same thing. They kept putting in hills and trees. And I'm like, you need to have just gone to Roswell for one day and would realize that none of this is right. And even today, you can look at pictures online, you know. Oh, no kidding. You can look at Google Earth. There is nothing stopping you from doing your research. So, yeah, I know. It's crazy. <laughs> but that's okay. I mean, like I say, people's what drives people crazy. My husband is big. He's a, a slide rule expert. And he'll, in the middle of some, you know, really serious espionage drama, lean over and say that slide rule is not invented until 1958. And it ruins it for him. So yeah. I do try to get my research right because there's always somebody who knows it. And then that kicks them out of the story. And it and does. It you're does. already trying to. You're already trying to tell them a really improbable story a lot of the time, especially in science fiction. And so you need to to work really hard to make it seem as plausible as possible. And I think I think as readers, then when somebody nails it, it just makes it so much better. Well, that's what I love. If, if I read a book that that gets it really right and, and I'm just like, oh, yes. Oh, yes. That's so true. Then it, it, it you're right. It adds to the enjoyment. Your books do tend to involve a lot of research. I think I read that Blackout and All Clear took eight years to write in part because of the research into that time period. So was this book a little bit easier to write or was there still a lot of research that went into it other than the geography? Um, uh, Well, like I said, I spent a lot of time with maps. And you know, the biggest problem right now is 
the internet doesn't have any decent maps. It has really good maps and it has, can get you to the nearest Starbucks and that kind of thing. But if you're trying to see like the Southwest in any kind of detail, um, you can't. I, I ended up going to antique stores, which is where you have to buy roadmaps now, the kind that they used to give away at the gas stations, you know, and um, and getting a map of the Southwest so that I could see, okay, where's Arizona in relationship to New Mexico and where is that relationship to Vegas, et cetera. So that was, I did a lot of research on that. I did, unfortunately, on my phone, a lot of research on Las Vegas wedding chapels, which means I still get ads for wedding chapels. They are apparently oh. convinced that I would like to get married <laughs> in Vegas. And they keep sending me ads for, you know, Vegas, uh, for Elvis weddings, UFO weddings, <laughs> you name it. And uh, that's very funny to have that keep showing up on my feed years after I did the research. So, but yeah, there was, I tried to do a lot of research into the UFO phenomenon and to, to, so that I would, you know, cause when I started, I thought, like with most conspiracy theories, there's some some germ of information or truth that has led to this endless confabulation. You know, at the heart of it, there's something. And I kept thinking, maybe at the heart of the whole UFO thing, there's some germ of truth that, you know, really did lead to all this craziness. I was unable to find anything. <laughs> The closest I came was, and this is a really, I couldn't think of a way to get this into the book, but the Roswell is where Robert Goddard lived. And Robert Goddard is who did all the early work on rockets, mm -hmm. um, and which led to the V-1 and the V-2 in World War II, sadly, and then led to the space program. And he was shooting off his rockets in the Roswell area all the time in the early 1900s and so i don't know the only thing i can think of is that somehow that got associated space rockets etc got associated with the roswell area um and that's why that's why they were so quick to latch on to the to the conspiracy theory but other than that i i couldn't find it it, it was it was just all made up and it was just amazing how it was all made up so so i i definitely wanted to put that in the book Going back to talking about why people believe in these conspiracy theories, it goes back to our need for storytelling in general to explain the things we don't understand. Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree with that. And of course, I'm the irony of this book is that I it's uh, a book about uh, skepticism toward alien abductions and at the same time a book about alien abduction, although That's not in a form that you would recognize. So... And and you have such an interesting mix of characters, the skeptics, the believers, the, hey, I'm just here because I've got an RV kind of thing. Right. Um, the old lady who likes to go to casinos and gamble. Yes. Well, she really goes for the buffets. <laughs> well, who doesn't, right? <laughs> right, right. One of my favorite parts, because I think it's it's interesting when you're writing a book, it's set in contemporary times, that cell phones are just so invasive and pervasive at this point that... It's hard to build a story when you've got a cell phone there. And one of my favorite parts right. is Indy, who is the alien, just throws a cell phone out the window. And I'm like, oh, problem solved. Right. Right. <laughs> yes. That is a problem. It's gotten to be more and more of a problem. When I wrote um, Lincoln's Dreams, I was able to use answering machines and people were unable to get the messages that they were supposed to get. And that book was all about messages that weren't gotten. So that worked really well. And then by the time my later books came along, that was no longer 
possible. And the, you're right, the cell phone is everywhere. So you have to have to think of something to make because because half of storytelling is people who can't call the cops. You know, uh, you, the last thing you want is in your book, people reading along and going, why didn't they just call the police? So you've got to think of some way. And I, I've always loved like Agatha Christie as early as the mousetrap, you know, that play. But she she solves the problem by having people trapped in a, uh, a guest house in the middle of a snowstorm, which has taken the lines down. But even even back in 1940 something, whenever she wrote that, she was dealing with that problem, too. So and you would think that because of cell phones, if the aliens were really real, the UFOs were really real, we'd have definitive proof. I've always want, I've always thought it's very interesting that the photographs from, you know, 20, 30 years ago of the fuzzy object flying in the sky, you don't see those anymore. Right. Right. And here's here's something I've always found really fascinating. The last fairy sighting came about the same year that photography became possible. Huh. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> so suddenly it wasn't possible except for uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, the most skeptical person on the planet. I mean, the most gullible person on the planet. He, he was the, and he had those pictures of the little girls with the fairies, supposedly, right. which turned out to be paper dolls, which looked like paper dolls, and which he explained away by saying the fairies actually live in a different plane of existence so that things in this plane will tend to look two-dimensional. And I'm like, well, that's one explanation. The other explanation is they are two-dimensional. They're paper doll. But the that's about when the whole fairy thing, fairy sighting stopped, because then people were like, why don't you have photographs of the fairies? And it's about the same time that the first you talk of UFO sightings and aliens started. So it's like they moved smoothly from one conspiracy theory to another that more fit the modern age. That is fascinating. Is there any mystery out there that you find just truly unexplained that might count as a, a theory, a conspiracy theory for yourself? Oh, you know, my heart has been broken several times recently when they found Anastasia's bones. That was like my favorite conspiracy theory. I really, really wanted Anastasia to have survived. Mm -hmm. And then I really, really wanted uh, the, the monster at Loch Ness to be a dinosaur. And that they have proof now that that was a total fake. Uh, an advertising campaign, if you can believe that, back in the 1930s. So my heart has been broken on several of my favorite conspiracy theories. No, Paul McCartney is not dead. And <laughs> I, I can't think of any that, I mean, there are so many things we don't know. And it's so fascinating, the things that we find out as time goes by. I mean, one of my favorites is all those survivors on the Titanic kept saying, it split in half. The ship split in half. And they kept saying, no, it didn't. You know, you think you saw that, but you didn't see that. And then when they got to the bottom, sure enough, mm -hmm. the Titanic had split in half. And and people are always saying things like, uh, you know, the victors write history and we'll never know the real truth about that. And that's just not true. The farther we get from a historical event, the more we find out about it. And we're finding out new stuff every single day about World War II. And we're finding out new things about Watergate, you know, we will continue to find out more stuff. That's, I just, I find the finding out of things we didn't know way more interesting than, than any conspiracy theory could be. 
It's it's interesting that you bring up the Titanic and the people and you know the the eyewitnesses who weren't believed because I just read an interesting thread on Twitter where someone pointed out that so many of those eyewitnesses were women because those yes. were the ones who survived and because they were women they weren't believed. Right. Yeah, there was a huge um Walter Lord wrote, you know, A Night to Remember which is still the best book about the Titanic. And then afterwards he got so many letters and and people Talk, talking to him, further survivors telling him things and all this stuff. And he wrote a follow-up book. I think it's called The Night Goes On, which has mm-hmm. a whole bunch of other stuff that he found out post-writing that book. Well, one of the fascinating things to me was, you know, they've always talked about uh, the band playing till the very end, which they did, but, but that they were playing nearer my God to the at the end. And, and that has been the accepted wisdom. And then one of the women who had survived, like you say, uh, a woman, she said, she wrote him and said, I don't think it was. I think it was a dance tune. They were a dance band. They weren't a, you know, a church band. And she said they were playing dance tunes on the on the deck. And she said, I did could not remember what the last song they played was. But she said, I walked into a uh, hotel for a tea dance in the 1930s sometime. And she said, and I heard the band and I just went cold. She said, I was instantly back in the water and I was, you know, there at the Titanic. And what the band was playing was a, was a dance tune called Otter, which sounds a great deal like Nearer My God to Me. It has uh-huh. almost the same melodic line. I've been in love with the Titanic ever since I read uh, A Night to Remember when I was, I think, 15. And so that had kind of an even longer germination time than than uh, the road to Roswell. But the same thing, just an endless fascination. So we're almost out of time, but I, two two quick questions. The road to Roswell ends on a bit of a cliffhanger. Will there be another? No, 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 oh. no. You can figure out the you can figure out what happens next for yourself. Oh. Uh, yeah, I am currently working. First of all, I'm getting really old and running out of time. And I have, I'm currently working on a new uh, time travel book that's set in my Oxford historian's time travel world. Oh. Um, and and then when I finish that, I want to do a book about, if I still have time, I want to do a book about um, Agatha Christie's disappearance and my theory of what happened. That that's a, That's a conspiracy theory that I am fascinated by, is what... What was she doing? Where was she? Why did she disappear? And I don't think any of the books that claim to have solved that mystery have done it right. And I have a theory. So anyway, then I I guess maybe if I finished all those and I was still around and not completely daughtery, then I guess I might consider a Roswell thing. But I I think it's got a pretty good ending. I mean, I think it ends at a pretty good place. I'll I'll say that. (laughs) I really hope. We get to read the Agatha Christie theory of yours. I just love her. She, to me, it, it drives me crazy. People constantly underestimate her. She is the ne- the next best-selling author in the history of the world after Shakespeare and the Bible. And yet people are always saying, well, she writes those nice little mysteries. And I'm like, I think there's like maybe more to her than you think. And then even people who should know better, like P.G. James would say, well, she was good at one kind of thing, but nothing else. I'm like, oh, my gosh, 
none of you really understand what she's doing. She's brilliant. And one of the reasons I want to write a book about Agatha, it wouldn't be about Agatha. It's about the mystery of Agatha, mm -hmm. um, is that uh, is that I would like to tell people how brilliant she was and what exactly she was doing. And it wasn't just writing harmless little cozy mysteries. She was playing games with the reader. She was she was looking at one of her best tricks is to go, all right, you are sitting down to read a mystery. What assumptions are you making that you are not aware that you are making? Okay, how can I use that as a weapon against you? And she hmm. did it over and over and over and over through 50 novels. Well, Connie, thank you so much for talking with me today. This has been a delight. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it. The Road to Roswell is available now. Find out more at WSKG.org. Off the Page is a production of WSKG Public Media. I'm your host and producer, Crystal Sarakis. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me next time we go Off the Page. Mm -hmm.